This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled Mystical Prayer, recorded November 23, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. A couple of Sundays ago, I touched on the difference between uh, esoteric or mystical prayer and exoteric prayer, and afterwards someone suggested that this would be a subject for a whole talk in its own right. And it certainly would, and so I thought maybe I'd take it up this morning. In fact, it could be a subject for a whole series of talks. So really, uh, all I can try to do is give you a bare-bones outline view of how mystical or esoteric prayer is viewed and practiced in the mystical streams of all the great traditions. So keep that in mind, because there are a lot of variations you may have heard that are slightly different from what I'm going to say here. But let's begin with talking about these two words, exoteric and esoteric. What do they mean? These are important because if you read about mystical traditions, uh, they're words that will pop up quite a bit. And they come from the Greek, the originally Greek terms, and exoteric simply means outer, and esoteric means inner. So it simply means outer and inner. And most of the great uh, traditions, religious traditions of the world, if you examine them, you'll find that they have these two dimensions, so to speak. The outer dimension and then the inner dimension, the exoteric dimension and the esoteric dimension. The outer dimension is the visible forms, the rites, the rituals, the scriptures, particularly when they're literally interpreted, uh, moral precepts or commandments and so forth. But if you start investigating, especially under the guidance of a mystic of that particular tradition, uh, you will uncover deeper, more profound meanings to these outer forms. And that is, you're starting then to enter into the esoteric or inner dimension of the tradition, leading ultimately to what mystics regard as the core of all these traditions, which is enlightenment or gnosis or realization. And this applies to prayer as well. There are, in most traditions, various degrees or levels of prayer. For instance, among the Jewish uh, Hasids, who are uh, (coughs) mystics of the Jewish tradition, they distinguish two basic kinds of states attained in prayer. And I'm butchering these terms, but one is called Katnut, Uh, That's Q-A-T-N-U-T is how it's spelled in English, transliterated. And that is the lesser or exoteric state of prayer. And the other is Gatlut, G-A-D-L-U-T. And that is the greater or esoteric state of prayer. And the fundamental difference between these two states is this, that in Katnut, you can be very devotional. You can have very devotional feelings and, and so forth. It can be very powerful prayer. But the distinction, the boundary between the worshiper and what is worshipped remains. So there's the petitioner, the the one who's praying, and then there's the God that's being prayed to, and that boundary remains there. In Gatlut, the greater and esoteric prayer, all boundaries are transcended, especially this boundary between the person who's praying and the God that's being prayed to. So this is the... (coughs) fundamental distinction here, and you'll find this sort of distinction cropping up in all mystical traditions. Now, as the seeker moves 
deeper into a tradition from the exoteric outer form uh, into deeper levels of esoteric prayer, first the understanding of the divinity starts to change, and then the motivation for the prayer itself begins to undergo a change. So in exoteric prayer, generally speaking, uh, the divinity is conceived as an exterior being, usually some superperson, and very often appearing under the archetype of a parent, a mother or a father. So you pray to our father <coughs> or to the divine mother. And this being is conceived to possess uh, infinite powers, and particularly the power to reward and punish, and to grant favors and so forth. So the quality of prayer is usually uh, either repentance of some sort, it's asking for forgiveness. If you've done bad things, you, you want to be forgiven so you're not punished, uh, either in this life or in the hereafter. Or it's conducted as a kind of bargaining. So somebody might pray, if, if only I get this job, if only I get this person that I love, I will say a thousand Hail Marys or something like that. Uh, has that, have any of you ever had this experience? I mean, you mean have you ever done that? Yes. Prayer? Yes. <laughs> How do you think I got here? <laughs> Actually, it's very interesting because uh, in my experience, this is quite intuitive, built into human beings. When I was in Vietnam, uh, and I had no religious uh, sentiments whatsoever. I didn't believe in any God, but I found myself often praying and saying, you know, just if you get me out of here, I'll never complain about doing dishes again. I was thinking about... In the army before I went to Vietnam, I had did a lot of KP. You're doing a lot of dishes, so it's it's a it's a real deep seated instinct or intuition that we have. Esoteric prayer, however, aims not at getting favors or rewards or avoiding punishment, but aims at getting closer to the divinity. And the divinity is now conceived not so much as a person but as the ground of all uh, phenomena, you might say, the ultimate reality, uh, a mystery in that sense, because it isn't a thing. It isn't a, like a thing out there. It's the uh, innermost core of everything. And so esoteric prayer aims at uh, getting close to this and ultimately to a union with what is often called the indwelling God, particularly in the uh, Jewish and Christian traditions. And this indwelling God, of course, is ultimately, from a mystical point of view, your true self. And we have to be careful about this because it does not mean that the ego is God. And sometimes people mistake that and it's a, a complete perversion of the teaching. The ego is not God, the, the sense of your sense of I. But if you knew who you truly were, what is the essence of your being, that essence is the divine, and it's the essence of everything. So, esoteric prayer is, first of all, not uh, an end in itself, but it's uh, a vehicle. It's something that you need during the course of your practice, but it's, uh, it's a vehicle that after you've attained this, you don't need anymore. This is why Brother Lawrence, who is a Christian mystic, says, These devotions are nothing more than a means to arrive at an end. If then we are with the one who is our end by this practice of the presence of God, it is certainly useless to return to the means. 
So you can think of it uh, a little bit as, um, oh, I don't know, when uh, kids start to learn how to ride bikes, they put these training wheels on them, you know, until they learn how to balance and ride the bike, and then you take the training wheels off. So the forms, the outer forms of mystical prayer are like that. They are aids. They are means to an end. So what is this means? Why do we need a means? What is the means going to do? Well, this is a means of purification. And from a mystical point of view, God is always present. God is always right there. The problem is we don't notice. We just don't notice. We ignore, literally, don't pay attention. We ignore this divine reality that is the essence of all things. And the reason we don't notice, the reason we don't pay attention, is we are distracted. And what we are distracted by is our own limited, separate self. All our self-concerns, our worries, our fears, our desires, our fantasies, our problems, and all that. That's what consumes our attention. So attention is totally wrapped up in this uh, sense of being a separate self, it, it doesn't notice what is just the case, what is just the reality. So to experience, begin to experience the presence of this divinity, it's necessary to somehow tear our attention away from ourselves, from all these concerns, these worries and fears and so forth, and to rid ourselves of these distractions. And this takes time. It's not something you can just do by an act of will or decide to do or whatever. It's a process that unfolds in time. And this means that esoteric prayer itself develops over time. And you can think of it as like an art form. In fact, Theophane the Recluse, who is another Christian mystic, calls it the art of prayer. And it's like an art form. If you want to learn how to play the violin or something like that, you know, you have to start with learning how to maneuver the strings and then play scales and all that until eventually you can play freely and easily and spontaneously. And this is very important. It's something we have to learn. And that's um, quite different from the way exoteric prayer is often approached. I mean, you learn the words of the prayer, maybe if you're a Christian, our father or something, but then that's it. So you just say our father and that's it. But uh, esoteric prayer is a, a deepening of this experience. Uh, Theophane says, The habit of prayer is not formed suddenly, but requires long work and toil. And anybody who's going to get into an esoteric practice should realize that out front. Uh, it's different for different people. For some people it's longer and more toilsome, and for others it's less. But for everybody there's going to be um, some period of going through a rough time with it. And because it's a process that unfolds in time, we can think of it as unfolding in stages. And different traditions will uh, identify different stages. And one way to uh, categorize this is to think of it in, as unfolding in six stages. And uh, these can be related to, by the way, those who know the way we break up the stages of a spiritual path at the center to the seven stages of a spiritual path. The reason there are only six stages here is because the first stage you already have to have entered in order really to be able to do a prayer practice. And that's awakening of faith. If you don't have any sort of awakening of faith, it's very hard to begin a prayer practice. Although, I must say, it wouldn't be impossible. Uh, I think you could begin this practice, and that, that might actually uh, 
introduce you to this divine reality, and then that is an awakening of faith. But generally speaking, for most people, you already have some, some intuition of this reality uh, that is at the essence of all things and that you are aiming to get closer to. So, these six stages could be called, first, the softening or opening of the heart. Second, the taming of thoughts. Third, prayer in the heart. Fourth, unceasing prayer. Fifth, silent prayer. And then six, enjoying the fruits of prayer. So let's look at them one at a time and see what these might mean. So opening the heart or softening the heart, what is this about? A lot of what distracts us from the divine are worries, concerns, fears, anxieties, and so forth that are almost subconscious. Have you ever had that feeling something's wrong? You don't quite know what it is. You're, you're nervous about things. And our, also our tendency is to always get away from those feelings, to not only ignore them, but uh, to actually repress them, to keep up appearances, to pretend everything's okay. We don't, we're afraid to let those feelings really surface. And we can't, we can't rid ourselves of the distraction of these worries and concerns if they remain unconscious. Whatever our attachments are, whatever our images of self are, whatever is bothering us, the first thing we have to do is bring it into the light of awareness. So the first step in prayer is simply pouring out your heart to God. Here's how Theophane defines prayer. The essence of prayer is the spiritual lifting of the heart towards God. The mind in the heart stands consciously before the face of God, filled with due reverence, and begins to pour itself out to him. So it's taking a time here to uh, let go. And this is very simple. Theophane also, uh, at another quote, calls this, uh, it says, prayer is very simple. It's children talking to their father without any subtleties and without any pretense. With God, you don't have to keep up appearances. You don't have to keep up a front. And in fact, the beginning of prayer is this, just this opening of your heart, just letting go. And it doesn't hurt at all, even though we're very intellectually sophisticated at this stage, to think of the divine as a parent, a loving mother or father. It's very useful and helpful. We just don't want to be stuck with that as the ultimate uh, definition of God. But just to have someone, uh, a shoulder to cry on. In mystical prayer, you're not asking God to solve these problems. You're not asking God for favors. You're not asking God to make everything okay. You're simply bearing your soul the way you would to a, a friend. So I thought maybe we would try this for a few minutes. Now, of course, we don't have much time here. And this, again, this, this process for some people is itself a very difficult, traumatic even process, but just to give us a taste, because I always think it's a good idea if you can get a little, just even a little taste of what these practices are about, that's already a little bit of a beginning. So let's take about five minutes here, and normally those of you who come to the center often know that I always recommend doing meditations and stuff with your eyes open, but for, for these meditations, uh, it's okay to close your eyes. And let's see what this would be like.
just to become, first of all, just to settle down, become uh, really quiet. If you have a meditation practice and you want to just focus on your breath for a little bit. And then, inwardly, just start to bear your soul, to open your soul to the divine. So I will ring this little gong once to let us know we're started, and twice to let us know that our little uh, exercise here is over, okay? Everybody ready? Here we go. If you would like to follow our format, turn off your tape player and meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. Then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. So, uh, what was your experience? Basically, I was asking for help mm -hmm. in certain ways. Yeah. Same thing. Okay, right. So, it turned into a request. Also, praise. Anyone? Also, praise. <coughs> praise. Praise. Uh-huh. Gratitude. Gratitude. Mm -hmm. Gratitude. Oh, very interesting. Anybody find it difficult to do this? I mean, it's five minutes here. More yeah. I'm finding it increasingly difficult after studying with you. <laughs> because um, in the old way, there was a sort of me and thou, you know. Uh -huh. There was this personality, somebody I could direct it to. And I'm very confused the last six or eight months because I don't, I don't sense that there's something separate out there. And I don't know quite how to direct it. So... Uh, this is an interesting challenge to sort of come to grips with that. So what? Well, I mean, I what tried happened? to pray, right. but it just I there was no object I could pray to, so it was right. um, you know it's a shift for me in prayer. I think this is quite common, especially for more intellectual types, if you like. And what happens is, in most cases, it's a rough period. There's a shift from thinking of God as out there. And then there's the beginning of the experience of God in here. Now, it's still separate, but it's an innermost object that isn't out there, but it's an object that's deeper in here. Do you see what I mean? And once you tap into that, then this kind of uh, practice becomes much easier. Uh, Al-Ghazali wrote about this. He was a great Sufi, but for a while he lost total faith in any God out there. But then through practicing with Sufis, he discovered the, the indwelling God. And then ultimately, that's the direction you go to arrive finally at this union. Anybody else have any uh, other difficulties? Well, I don't know if it's a difficulty, but I kept feeling cynicism at the whole thing. <laughs> because uh, I keep seeing these images of what I ought to be and how I should be. And then I'd be watching that, and it got very tiresome because it was all uh, <clears throat> can't be thinking of yourself kind of thing, and yet thinking that you can't be thinking of yourself. <laughs> thinking of yourself. That's right. Okay. okay, good. So I just your mind got all yeah. Wrapped well, I just up let and, everything right. go, uh -huh. and, and that that was much more comfortable. Okay. Yeah. Anybody feel uh, any sort of embarrassment? 
I tried to um, play the part of the prayer. Uh-huh. I felt like I was acting. Um, and then after a while, I just went into my usual meditation, which was, which was always right there, uh-huh. watching the breath and, and the mantra. <coughs> I tried, but it seemed artificial to me. For most people, this is a very personal kind of process. To be genuine, the, this initial stage of the prayer, there has, it has to be, or it has to be genuine, let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a genuine pouring out your heart without any, uh, I said, pretense or, you know. And you know when it's happening, when there's that feeling that it's um, a little bit uncontrollable, that you're saying things you would have never said before or something, when it really deepens Here's how Eddie Hillisum, who was a great uh, mystic of this century, who died in Auschwitz, here's how she describes her first experiences with prayer. And by the way, she was a very sophisticated young woman, very intellectual and whatnot. She says, When I write these things down, I feel a little ashamed, as if I were writing about the most intimate of intimate matters, much more bashful than if I had to write about my love life. But is there indeed anything as intimate as man's relationship to God? And this fact that she feels bashful and she feels a little bit ashamed and stuff is a sign that it's working. It's not a sign that it isn't working, but it's, this is precisely it's bringing up these obstacles in her. And this is why esoteric prayer, especially in these beginning stages, this, this aspect of it, is almost always requires privacy and solitude. And this is one of the big differences between uh, this and exoteric prayer, which is often done in a public forum, uh, you know, saying the liturgy in a church or whatever. But you're uh, almost always advised in mystical traditions to go off on your own for this, because it's harder for us to really, really let our guard down when we're with other people in a room full of other people. This is why the Hasidic master Naman of Bratslav says, A man should set aside at least an hour or more during which he is alone in a room or in a field so that he can converse with the maker in secret. Going off, you know, by yourself, so there's just nothing but you and God. And then he says, uh, what happens if you do that, though, and nothing comes? (laughs) You don't know what to say. I mean, we're talking now the very beginning of a prayer practice. Or maybe you say a few things, and then it just sort of dries up. You don't know what else to say. Well, Naman continues. He says, Even if it happens to be the case that he finds himself incapable of opening his mouth to speak to God at all, yet this is good in itself, namely the very preparation in which he makes himself ready to speak to God. And he can make up a prayer regarding this very thing. Regarding this very thing, he should cry out in prayer that he has become so remote from God that he finds himself unable even to speak to him. And he should entreat God and beg him to open his mouth so that he can converse with him. So you see, wherever you are, you can start. If you don't know how to pray, then you can pray to be able to pray. Initial obstacles that usually arise at this very beginning stage of the practice are such things as, at least in my case, and in Eddie Hillison's case, embarrassment or bashfulness or a kind of a shame. I remember my first spiritual practices, it wasn't exactly prayer, but I was trying to do these 
shamanic practices and I'd go out in this hillside behind my cabin. I was living in Topanga at the time and I'd sit there and I'd just sort of, uh, oh, do a few little made up rites and then I sort of wait for something to happen. And what was happening was I started worrying about supposing somebody comes along and sees me sitting here, how stupid I look. <laughs> Often what comes up here, and this may surprise a lot of people, is anger, anger at God. Uh, a friend of ours, Alex Taylor, wrote a book which we have in the library called Adore Jar, and she was brought up Catholic, and she describes in one of the chapters how after she became a young woman and she abandoned her, her uh, naive Catholic faith, and she at this time, she was searching for something, but she certainly wasn't Catholic, and she certainly didn't have this idea of God as some sort of big daddy in the sky. And uh, she was with a group of people, and they decided to try a prayer practice, and she decided to try saying our Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against them. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Right? Boy, see, I had a Episcopal upbringing. Now... This uh, interesting thing happened. She started saying this, and she found she couldn't get through it. She couldn't finish saying it. So she talked it over with some friends, and one person advised her to go back and say it slowly to see what point she got stuck at. So she went back, and she could say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and she could not say, Thy will be done. And then, when she realized this, all these resentments came up because she had been an epileptic, and even from when she was a little girl. And she realized she was angry at God. She was furious at God for afflicting her with this disease, which she felt in many ways had ruined her life. She felt she could never marry because she was an epileptic and all that. And so this tremendous anger and resentment and stuff came out, and she didn't even believe in God. This is... This is the level at which this prayer is trying to reach. This is why I said in the beginning, it's trying to reach something that's even unconscious. It's not something that has so much to do with your intellectual beliefs, but how you actually feel in your deepest heart of hearts. Uh, feelings of self-pity can arise, especially if you do this for a while longer. And you find you start with realizing your problems, your worries, anxieties, whatever, and then you find your mind starts generating a lot of thoughts around this. You get all involved in this mental soap opera about yourself. And so once again, you're distracted, right? Or you find you start asking, and this asking is interesting, it just arose spontaneously, a couple of you said this, and in the beginning, if you were just as if you're asking for God's will to be done, in the sense, not those necessarily those words, but not asking for a solution that I want, I, the ego, wants, but just saying, look, I'm in trouble, help, and leave it up to God to help, that's fine. But you watch your mind start now asking for something specific. Well, God, help me. I mean, I really, I just have such, I don't know, uh, lack of self-confidence. Please just give me some confidence. If you would give me some confidence, you know what? I would spend my time working for charity. Uh, and that, you're back into the bargaining, right? And what's at the center of this is I, I, I. So our minds start to get uh, uncontrollable. And especially when these deep feelings start to arise, because the mind thinks its job is always to protect us, you know? So it's always plotting ways that it can help us uh, solve the problem of suffering. It can't, but it always thinks it can. 
So this profusion of thoughts that starts to develop leads quite organically to the next stage of the practice, which is taming the mind, taming thoughts, so that they don't keep running off into uh, these mental melodramas. So how can we do this? Well, the most common method, and you will find this virtually in all spiritual traditions, is the repetition of some divine name or a short prayer. The Hindus call this mantra, and here's what Anandamoyamai, who is a great uh, Hindu mystic of this century, uh, says about it. She says, as if by compulsion the mind runs after the gratifications of desires that bring suffering. The mind has become uncontrollable. By the repetition of a divine name or mantra, this illness can be cured. And in the Sufi tradition, which the Sufis are the mystics of Islam, this is called zikr, and means literally remembrance. It's the remembrance of God, which is keeping attention on God. And Ibn Arabi, a great Sufi, writes, Occupy yourself with zikr, the remembrance of God, with whatever zikr you choose. The highest of them is the greatest name. It is your saying, Allah, Allah, and nothing but Allah. So here's a, a Hindu, a Sufi. Now listen to the a Christian mystic, the anonymous uh, author of a great Christian manual, The Cloud of Unknowing. We don't know who this person is, really. But uh, the cloud says, Choose a short word rather than a long one. A one-syllable word such as God or love is best. Then fix it in your mind so that it will remain there, come what may. This word will be your defense in conflict and in peace. Use it to subdue all distractions. Should some thought go on annoying you, demanding to know what you are doing, answer with this one word alone. Do this, and I assure you these thoughts will vanish. Why? Because you have refused to develop them with arguing. So, you see, it's the same advice in all these traditions. And it comes out of the same problem that almost everybody encounters when they start to do this kind of prayer. You are distracted by this profusion of thoughts. So what can you do about it? Well, you focus on one thought. You pick one thought. A little short prayer, a divine name, something to just focus on. Does everybody get the principle of this? And why it happens? It's not arbitrary, you know. And in some traditions, they've lost sight of the basic principle. And so you'll find, oh, in different Hindu schools, I've heard arguments between uh, followers of different gurus, and they will go on and on about whose mantra is superior. And <coughs> the, the difference of the tone and all that can make a difference and whatnot. But the fundamental principle, it doesn't matter whether you say Allah or God or love or whatever. What you're driving at is to train the mind to not be distracted, to keep the attention on one thing. So here I thought maybe we try this for a little bit and see how this uh, plays out. So why don't we take another little uh, few minutes and why don't you, in your own mind, take uh, the author of The Cloud of Unknowing's advice, choose some word yourself or some little prayer and see what happens if you say it over and over and when you find you're distracted, just focus the attention on that one word or that one little prayer. Okay? Everybody ready? Here we go. If you would like to follow our format, 
Turn off your tape player and meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. Then turn the tape back on for the remainder of the program, which immediately follows. So what was your experience with this? Distraction. Distraction. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I just had a hard time staying on the mantra. My thoughts wandered. Thoughts wandered from the mantra. Anybody else have that? Yeah. The same. Quick meditation. I had to keep saying the mantra louder to myself. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, another advantage to starting this practice alone in solitude is you can say it out loud, and that, that's very helpful. I found it really helped with distraction. Excuse me? I, it really helped me with distraction. I was a lot less distracted than I am with meditation. Mm -hmm. Yes. The word starts having an effect of the meaning. The word starts it's what? It's not just a devoid of meaning. I was using the word love, so... I was having that, the emotional feeling of love as well. Then that feeling leads to visions mm -hmm. and things that are connected to the feeling, so then that gets distracted. So uh -huh. the word again. Okay, there you go. It's important that the, to remember the principles, to keep the attention on this, not to let the mind fool you by getting off and thinking, oh, this is spiritual, and I'm pondering all these things. Right. <laughs> and having or visualizing all these things. Mm -hmm. Did anybody have this experience that actually they were able to keep the uh, mantra, prayer, whatever going, and it's, but it sort of goes in the background, and then yes. thoughts are in the foreground. That's why I had to say it louder. And that's why I had to say it louder, <laughs> right, okay. Well, I had that, but then there was like blackness in the foreground and not thoughts, you know, that the, the mantra was just sort of a and you're entering into a kind of emptiness. Yeah. Well, for some of you people who have done a lot of practice, this is sort of, mm -hmm. as uh, Brother Lawrence said, once you've you know, gone through the stage, there's no point in going back and hanging on to the means. In fact, I'm not surprised if it isn't very kind of distracting and gross. It you, was hard. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, yes? I think I must have done it wrong because I, I started out waiting. It was like I was anticipating something a distraction, and then I was going to say the mantra, and it seemed like the anticipation of the distraction, I really didn't have very many distractions. <laughs> I didn't really say it very much, it's that it sort of sets up stillness somehow by the anticipation of the distraction, it never seemed to come. And so I would only say, and I would, surrender was the word I was using, and, and i just wait, and then there'd be a little thinking, I'd say surrender, and then it would just get still again, and it just kind of cycled that way. So that well, you're describing uh, a technique well-known, for instance, in the Tibetan tradition, and that is when thoughts are bothering you, you look right at them, and they tend to... Yeah, is like looking right at them. Or uh, there are, in, in uh, certain stages of meditation, you want to meditate, meditate on thought itself, and people find after going through years of meditation trying to be rid of thought, they sit down to meditate on thought and nothing arises because they're looking right at it and nothing's happening. So uh, I think that little judo was happening in your case there. But this, um, the, the problem with this mantra or zikr or 
divine name practice, Jesus prayer practice it's called in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, is that it can become very mechanical. And just in this few minutes you experience that, those of you who experienced, okay, it's going on in the background, but the mind wanders off and is thinking about other things. So, when it becomes mechanical, then it loses really its transformative power. And again, this is a difference between exoteric and esoteric uh, understandings of prayer. Because in, uh, in a lot of traditions, the exoteric understanding of prayer that it is that it doesn't matter if you're paying attention or not, the power of the prayer itself is working. So you might have prayer wheels or prayer flags or something, you know. But from a mystical point of view, it's very important where your attention is and where your heart is. This is why Theophane writes, You must pray not only with words, but with the mind, and not only with the mind, but with the heart so that the heart feels what the mind is thinking. All these combined together constitute real prayer, and if any of them are absent, your prayer is either not perfect or is not prayer at all. So you have to feel the prayer. Now this is where prayer practice and meditation practice uh, diverge a little bit here. They come together in the end, but they diverge here. In a meditation practice, you don't necessarily have to feel it. But for the prayer practice, you're actually as we'll see in a moment, you're going to harness um, the emotion of devotion to, to help the practice. So if you're not feeling it here, then, as Theophane says, it's not a very powerful prayer, or maybe it's not even prayer at all. So what can you do about this? Well, there's several preliminary things you can do. One thing is, before you start a prayer uh, session, sit down and read something inspirational, something that will kind of motivate you. The other thing is to remember this uh, prayer practice is for your benefit, not for God's. To speak a little anthropomorphically here. God knows your problems. God knows your thoughts and so forth. So this is really a therapy for you. It's a way of removing obstacles and getting rid of the distractions that hide God from you. So it's not a duty that you have to do to please God. It's really for your own benefit and your own sake. And then finally, you might spend a little time contemplating death and the fact that life is very short and impermanent and very precious and that we waste so much of our lives in what? In these inane little fantasies and uh, mental dramas, which in the greater scheme of things are silly, really, you know, trivial. And if you are going to find a solution to the problem of suffering, if you are ever going to find God, right now in this lifetime is the time to do it. So if you only have half an hour a day for your little prayer practice, be selfish about that in the sense of guard that, be jealous of it. This is for you and this is your, this is your time to penetrate into the deepest mystery of who you are and what you're about and what this whole cosmos is about, what you're doing here. All those questions. Then, when you've prepared yourself mentally, emotionally, for the prayer practice, take uh, the Hasidic master's advice. They say, enter into prayer slowly. Do not exhaust your strength, but proceed step by step. Even if you are not aroused as your prayer begins, give close attention to the words you speak. So rather than just sit down and let's say you were saying Allah, Allah, nothing but Allah, as Ibn Arabi recommended, you don't just sit down and go Allah, 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 Allah. 
What does each word mean? You mentioned the word love actually started to evoke these emotions. That's good. But then you don't want to get all branched out. <clears throat> so try to feel what this prayer is. Try to feel the words you've chosen or the, or the phrase you've chosen. What does it mean in terms of personally connecting you to the divine? And even if you don't feel it in the beginning of the practice, this is why Hasidic masters say, go slowly, go into it slowly. It's a deepening, deepening process. Once your thoughts are somewhat tamed, because they will never be totally tamed just at this level, but once they're somewhat tamed, you're ready for the next stage of the practice. And this is prayer in the heart, as the Eastern Orthodox uh, Christians call it. But it's well known in other traditions as well. For instance, here's the Upanishads, the great Hindu classics. And they write about Om, the, the sacred syllable Om, which is used just like a mantra. Om, Om. With upright body, head and neck, lead the mind and its power into the heart. And the Om of Brahman will then be thy boat with which to cross the rivers of fear. So it's getting to a meditative posture, sitting upright, and then letting the mind lead the own that you're saying into the heart. Here's Theophane, uh, the recluse, explaining the reason for prayer in the heart. It is necessary to preserve attention and so lead it into the heart. For so long as the mind remains in the head, where thoughts jostle one another, it has no time to concentrate on one thing. But when attention descends into the heart, it attracts all the powers of the soul and the body into one point there. So this is a further concentration. And you notice when you're just saying the words at that superficial level, in your, with just with your mind, there are lots of thoughts and distractions and uh, conflicting tendencies and whatnot. Now, heart here has a double meaning. It's very important for us to recognize that. First, it does refer to the physical heart, which is, in the beginning of this practice, the focus of attention, quite literally. You can feel it there. And the reason the physical heart is used is because the physical heart, for most people and for most emotions, is their bodily seat, you might say. That's where we physically feel emotions, especially the most powerful ones, the ones that have to do with love and longing and so forth. But the heart, in mystical terms, really has another deeper meaning, and it refers to the spiritual heart, and the spiritual heart is not a physical organ. Uh, you can think of this whole process of bringing the mind from the level of thought into the heart, into the level of emotion, and then even sinking below that into the spiritual heart. So, how can you locate this spiritual heart? or even the, the uh, physical heart and, and the way it's used in prayer. So let's try one more little exercise here. And this time I'm going to give you a guided meditation. So if you'd all close your eyes and get seated. And this is just a meditation to locate where in the body or what is being talked about when these mystics say, bring the om into the heart or bring the prayer into the heart or the prayer of mind in the heart, Okay. So when I ring the gong, 
You might begin with your word or little short prayer you've chosen just for a little bit, and then I'm going to give you some sort of visualizations to do. So you can drop that, and then we'll come back to that uh, <coughs> prayer or word. All right? Now, the first instruction is to bring to mind, as vividly as possible, someone you once loved very dearly, but lost, either to death or for some other reason. Try to remember their face, their personality, particularly what you loved about them. Now try to recall as vividly as possible those feelings of loss, of yearning, of pain that you experienced at the time. Now try to locate bodily where in the chest or heart area you feel those feelings, you experience those emotions. The place where you would feel the emotions associated with terms like heartache, or heartbreak.
Now bring your attention to this area and try to sink down into it with your whole being so that you are in the heart experiencing the world from the heart. Now try to say your mantra and prayer in the heart, in that space where you are. your experience with this exercise yes I found when I was feeling the heartache I was like my whole body was kind of pinched over and sinking and then when I went down to my heart and started saying the mantra it was like an opening up again that's called opening of the heart yes indeed yeah, Christian mystics particularly use the phrase, they pray for a wound of the heart, a wounding of the heart, which is this idea of opening. And it's very interesting because when we first hear that, it sounds kind of dreadful. But if you think of it in terms of an infection that has to be lanced and that we have all this stuff uh, wrapped up in our heart and expressed by that gesture of being closed in. It's like closing it off. And our tendency is to close it off more to get away from it. When we actually enter it and go into it, then it's that like a lancing of the heart and opening up. And quite the opposite happens than we what we expect. Yeah. It, it did surprise me that just going down there would open. Anybody else? Uh, yes. Well, profound sadness and joy sort of almost at the same time. Very interesting. We usually think of sadness and joy as opposites. We don't want sadness, we want joy. And this is a, uh, a deception of the mind. And truly speaking, they aren't opposites. 
And truly speaking, you cannot have joy without sadness. And so the more we run away from sadness, the less joy we can have. And one of the things you discover when you let go of the mind and the thoughts and how you're supposed to feel things and allow the feelings to arrive, these divisions we make up that are imaginary just don't apply. And you start to get a sense of how it's possible to be happy, whether there's sadness or joy, that they really aren't opposites, and that happiness is not really about just always being joyful and never being sad. To just be fully experiencing is itself joyful, happy in a transcendent way. Anybody else? Anybody have difficulty with this? I didn't really feel myself in in the same way. In my meditations, I tend to be real kinesthetic, and so I feel more like things in my physical body, but the place, but I didn't feel that I actually sunk in there. I couldn't get a sense of that. Right. I'm not surprised. This is five minutes, and I'm just trying to give you a tiny little taste of how you might go about trying to explore what these things mean. Nirja, well, Nirja's done a lot of devotional practice. You see, so some of you have done a lot of practice. It's much easier. But we read these texts. We read about, oh, bringing, uh, you know, the mind into the heart. And it's a big mystery to us. The way to, to demystify it is to sit down and try and do it. I mean, I've done a lot of heart opening practices, so I feel this part of my body and I feel the feelings, but I don't. Maybe I was expecting something different than that. The way you said it, I didn't feel that. It, it is quite distinct, as Nirja was describing. It's, it's uh, the difference of feeling your heart, being aware of your heart as an object, sort of in consciousness, and being actually in your heart is a, is a different thing. Yeah, sure and these, you know, I said, this is just the tiniest little, not even a taste, a whiff of what these practices might be. It takes some time to do this. This is already, what, the third stage of the practice, prayer in the heart. So, you know, most people don't even get to this until they've done a year of prayer practice and zikr practice and whatnot. So it's not, don't be discouraged here. None of you be discouraged if you say, well, gee, that didn't work, you know. As I said, this is a long unfolding process. I'm just trying to give you a sense that you can just go out and do it. And if you sit around trying to figure these things out intellectually, when mystics talk about this, you'll never uh, arrive at anything. I've read a lot of scholars who've uh, examined these practices and write about them and compare them, and they have no idea what they're talking about because they've never done it. They literally have no idea what they're talking about. You've got to do it. So I'm just trying to give you a little confidence that, you you know, it can be done. This is not that hard. It takes time, but it's not that hard. It's quite simple, actually. Prayer practice, one of the advantages of us, it's a quite simple practice. Now, of course, in a prayer practice, instead of a human beloved, you're focusing on the divine beloved. And there are all sorts of things here, again, the things you can play with. For instance, if you realize that uh, all forms are forms of the divine, then one of the ways to enter into this is to uh, recall a human beloved, have that experience, but then let the form of the human beloved go and realize what you loved in the human beloved is truly the divine appearing to you in human form. 
That's, for instance, a little uh, adjustment you can make to the practice. It might work for you. But the idea is, when you get to the heart, when the mind descends into the heart, and when it is then focused on the prayer, so they're distracting thoughts are at least down to a minimum, then it starts to awaken something in the spiritual heart, below the, the superficial emotions we have. Here's how uh, Theophane uh, describes it. He says, This concentration is immediately reflected in the heart by a special sensation that is the beginning of future warmth. This sensation, faint at the beginning, becomes gradually stronger, firmer, deeper. At first only tepid, it grows into a warm feeling and concentrates the attention upon itself. And so it comes about that whereas in the, in the initial stages the attention is kept in the heart by an effort of will, in due course this warmth then holds the attention without special effort. Now what he's talking about, this warmth here, is a feeling of devotion, just a pure feeling of devotion. And it can become very strong. It can flame up into, uh, you know, burning ecstasy. Uh, but it begins as just a kind of a special warmth, just a, this just sense of devotion. And now we see the reason for this. Because once the heart yearns to pray, wants to pray, has this sense of devotion, it's no longer an effort to remain undistracted. Do you see what I mean? The motivation has shifted now from the will, forcing your mind to stay in the mantra, bringing the mind back to the mantra, to uh, now it's like when you're in love with a human lover, you know, it takes no effort to think about them. In fact, you can't usually think about anything else. You ever notice that? And we say, I'm so distracted, I can't work. I can't. All I can think about is her or him, right? And we try to put our attention on other things. Oh, you have to pay the bills. We try to concentrate on paying the bills. We can't. Well, it's the same process happening. So everything's turned around now. Now, you can't get enough of God. Here's how Eddie Hillison describes uh, a little further on in her prayer practice. She says, A desire to kneel down sometimes pulsed through my body, or rather, it is as if my body has been meant and made for the act of kneeling. Sometimes, in moments of deep gratitude, kneeling down becomes an overwhelming urge, head deeply bowed, hands before my face. It's, it's actually almost coming from outside. I mean, it's not something that's happening in the, in the realm of volition. Somebody mentioned in the first exercise we did, feelings of gratitude came up. Who mentioned that? Yeah. Spontaneously, feelings of gratitude come up. That's part of devotion. And then that makes you want to pray. You see how this is working here? Now this is really the, no pun intended, the heart of prayer practice. And why prayer practice has uh, so much power. And this is the advantage of prayer practice over most forms of meditation practice. Uh, and there's some disadvantages too, so it doesn't mean it's necessarily better. In fact, in meditation, it takes longer, but eventually you reach states of bliss in meditation, for instance, in uh, formal Buddhist meditation. And then, as they say, the feelings of bliss and joy water 
the concentration practice. So they work together. It's the same principle here, but this one is really putting the emphasis on arousing the sense of devotion and then using it to make the practice effortless, to take it out of your hands, so to speak. Okay. Big problem at this stage is when ordinary thoughts subside, when our ordinary concerns, worries, emotions, and all that subside, when we get very concentrated, something very interesting happens. That we touch into the wellsprings of creativity in ourselves. And I'm talking about creativity with that, that sense, if you've ever done anything creative, played music or written poetry or writing or whatever, when you really know what's happening is when it's, it's not coming from the head, it's coming from someplace else. It has that feeling of bubbling out, welling up inside you and coming through you, and you just feel like a vehicle for the expression of it. And you have to pass through this. Now, from the point of view of a prayer practice, this can be a great trap. Because you start having uh, these profound insights, these thoughts, images, uh, visions, and so forth. And you think, my God, I'm becoming a genius. At least that's the way I thought. This happened to me for a while. And it's tremendously distracting. You start pursuing them. you got a great, brilliant insight, a philosophical insight. You see the world in a new way, and you start building a whole new cosmology. And uh, there's a temptation to jump up and rush and write it down. Or maybe if you're a musician or something, a, a symphony bursts through, you know, or whatever. You are actually passing through that that level of the psyche, if you like, that is the uh, unconscious creativity, not the the uh, the ability to create novel little things which our minds can do, but that true, deep, profound creativity. And it's and this is a danger in a spiritual practice. If you are an author or a musician or something, this kind of meditation practice is very good to tap into that. That's your aim. But if your aim is to go deeper, you don't want to be trapped by this. And here's what Ignati writes. Do not theologize. Do not be carried away by following up brilliant, original, and powerful ideas which suddenly occur to you. Sacred silence, which is induced in the mind at the time of prayer by a sense of God's greatness, speaks of God more (coughs) profoundly and more eloquently than any human words. If you pray truly, said the fathers, you are a theologian. So what we're aiming for here is a silence. That's where the presence of God lies. Not in ideas about God, not in images about God, no matter how profound or how brilliant, or how creative. If you want the divinity itself, that ultimate reality, then don't settle for any images. Don't settle for any ideas. Don't settle for any forms. This is beyond form, transcends form. So take this to heart. And I mention this because I said it happened in my experience, and it can happen, and it is a very, very seductive uh, distraction, form of distraction. It does not feel like distraction. It feels like you're being given all these gifts and riches. And in a certain sense, you are. And that will be your reward. I think there's some Hasidic story about uh, uh, people who come to petition the king for rewards. And he sends his ministers out and they give them all the things they want and they get what they want and they go away. But the, the man who's come not to petition the king for any reward, but just to meet the king without expecting anything, without wanting anything other than the king, he gets ushered into the king's presence. 
everybody else, they get their reward, but they don't ever get to see the king. Here's what the Hasidic masters say about this. In prayer, turn to God alone and have no thoughts of yourself at all. Nothing but God exists for you. You yourself have ceased to be. Including all your brilliant ideas, including all your creativity, including all that. You're aiming at this deeper, deeper, deeper and deeper layers and levels of awareness here. If you can attain this state in formal prayer, more or less, somewhat, most of the time, these aren't, you know, absolute uh, fixed uh, stages, then you're beginning to be ready to move into the next stage, which is unceasing prayer. This is what Rumi, the great Sufi poet, writes about the ritual Islamic prayer. He says, after all, the purpose of this ritual prayer is not that you should stand and bow and prostrate yourself all day long. Its purpose is that you should possess continuously that spiritual state which appears to you in prayer. Whether asleep or awake, writing or reading, in all your states you should never be empty of the remembrance of God. Rather, you should be one of those, and this is a quote from the Quran, who are constantly at their prayers. Now, this sounds like a tall order. How could you be all day long in the remembrance of God, all day long praying, unceasing prayer? Can this be done? Is it possible? How can it be done? Well, you start by working away at your day from one way to do is from either end. And this is, for those of you who have done a Buddhist mindfulness practice, this is just really a mindfulness practice. You're trying to be more and more mindful during the day. Here you're trying to be more and more mindful of the presence of the divine in whatever activities you're doing. That doesn't mean this sense of this deep sense of the presence is always in the foreground, but it's always in the background. Everything starts to take place against this background or the presence of the divine. So Ananda Moyamai says, In the morning, as soon as you wake up, pray, Lord, accept as thy service everything I shall do today. At night, again, before falling asleep, pray, In self-surrender I bow to thee, placing my head at thy holy feet. Try to spend the whole day in the spirit. So that's a good way to begin unceasing prayer. You pray in the morning, pray in the afternoon, and then it's just try to stay in that spirit. A very common technique in, in most of these traditions is to literally start saying your mantra or divine uh, name over and over as much as you can throughout the day. You'll wake up in the morning, you'll start to say it, you'll forget, but then you'll remember, maybe an hour, two hours later, you start to say it again, you'll forget. And if you keep that up, pretty soon you will find this mantra running throughout uh, as a sort of a subtext throughout the whole day. And this is possible to do. And I went to uh, uh, visit a lama once in L.A., a Tibetan lama. And I had this interview with him. And I showed up at the house. And there was a few moments. He was getting ready or whatever. They gave me some tea. And then they ushered me in. And it was in a bedroom. And he was sitting on his bed in this meditative position. And he had his prayer beads. And there wasn't even sound. I could see his lips. And we started talking. And I was asking about Tibetan Buddhism and this and that. And through the whole thing, he was never stopped praying. And, you know, he talked and it didn't interrupt his conversation at all. But you don't even need to have that gross a level of prayer where you're actually mumbling or using beads or whatever. You get to the point where, as the Sufis put it, the heart steals 
the zikr from the tongue, and it starts to happen on its own, just spontaneously, like a jingle. Have you ever gotten a, like a television jingle in your mind and you can't get it out of your mind? It doesn't take any effort to have that running, right? But your mind should just be running like a television jingle, except in this case, you won't be trying to get it out of your mind. Here's what Theophane says about this. At first, the saving prayer is a matter of strenuous effort and hard work. But if one concentrates on it with zeal, it will begin to flow of its own accord, like a brook that murmurs in the heart. This is a great blessing that is worth working hard to obtain. I love that image, murmuring like a brook in the heart. You don't necessarily have to have a formal mantra or name to keep this a sense of the presence of God all the time. Brother Lawrence, a great Christian mystic, his method was very simple. Instead of talking to himself all day, he talked to God. And if you watch your mind, you'll see all day long you're talking to yourself. You're chatting with yourself about various things. So he just substituted God for himself. So he started carrying on continuous conversation in his mind with God. He talked about anything, you know. Oh, God, what a gorgeous day it is today, you know. Oh, God, couldn't you, you know, couldn't you give me a little sunshine? I was going to go see the Ducks game today. It's going to rain, you know, whatever. Maybe a little bit more reverence than that. But the, <laughs> the idea is to, instead of, instead of this sort of masturbatory uh, inner chit-chat that goes on, you know, all day with ourselves, you, you do it with God. He says, I was faithful to this practice during all my activities. At every moment, all the time, in the most intense periods of my work, I banished and rid from my mind everything that was capable of taking the thought of God away from me. He was a monk, but he was a very active monk. He was uh, low on the, on the totem pole there, and uh, he worked in the kitchen, and they sent him on these trips to buy wine, and he had a very busy life. And he ended up saying that this was more powerful for him, this kind of continual conversation with God all day long, than the times of formal prayer they had to do at the monastery, where they go do the liturgical ritual prayer. And that didn't move him so much. But this was his main practice. This was his only practice. But eventually there comes a time when even the words whether it's a formal prayer, whether it's a conversation or whatever, themselves are a distraction. They are too gross. They are too cumbersome. They become what is interfering with this stillness, this silence that's being aimed for. So this is why a famous Sufi, Bayezid, said, 30 years I spent in zikr. When I stopped, I realized my zikr was my veil. His zikr practice ultimately became the veil. And then when this happens, you're ready for the fifth stage, silent prayer. And the Upanishads say, By sound we go to silence. The sound of Brahman is Om. With Om we go to the end, the silence of Brahman. The end is immortality, union, and peace. So why is the silence of Brahman the end? Well, because the self that we experience as being separated from God is literally imaginary, and that means it's created by the mind. It is a creation. And as long as the mind is doing its thing, there's that uh, self being created as a focus of it, of whatever thing it's doing. 
When the mind falls into real, total, complete silence, emptiness, stillness, these are other uh, words used to all meaning the same thing. When the mind ceases, the self vanishes. It can't be there. It isn't anything else but a thought, but a creation of the mind. You see? I've often said it's like uh, a 4th of July. Maybe when you're a kid, you did this. Take a sparkler. And at nighttime, you whirl it around, whirl it around, and it makes a big circle, a big ring of fire. It looks like you reach out and you could grab that ring. But it isn't really there. It's imaginary. And if you stop the activity, it vanishes. And that's what the self is like. It doesn't really exist. This is why uh, Green and Holtz sum up the whole end of Hasidic prayer, the whole Hasidic prayer practice, by saying, This emptying of the mind of all content, which Hasidic prayer shares with many other meditative techniques, finally leads to that place within God known as nothing, or the realm of primordial nothingness. The height of contemplative prayer is marked by a unique blend of awareness and self-transcendence. The worshiper is no longer a separate self, but is fully absorbed in the nothingness of divinity. We heard this nothingness before. We ever heard of shinyata, a Buddhist term, means emptiness. It's all the same thing you see here. All roads lead to Rome, let's put it that way. They get there by uh, different methods and so forth, but they all lead the same place. And once this silence this stillness, this emptiness has occurred, then you are in the place to enjoy the fruit of this whole practice. Because in this place of stillness, of emptiness, of nothingness, even if it's just for a moment, if it's total, really total, that's the opportunity for realization, for enlightenment, for gnosis. It's in that moment of when the self is totally gone, now, you can enter into a state like this where there is no self and uh, you don't realize what's happening. So it's not a guarantee that realization will occur here, but realization can't occur as long as there is a sense of self. It's impossible. Because realization is that there is no self. So you can't be experiencing yourself and also realizing that there is no self. This is why Ramana <coughs> Maharshi said, all that is required to realize the self, this is the Hindu self with a capital S, is to be still. That's it. You see, all these practices come to this point. Just to be still. Just be still. Teresa of Vila said, it is quite certain that when we empty ourselves of all that is creature and rid ourselves of it for the love of God, that same Lord will fill our souls with himself. There's an old Jewish adage, whoever is full of himself has no room for God. And to be totally empty of self is to have the total presence of God. Nothing else. The uh, Hindu mystic Lali Shwari uh, did a practice of mantra. Her practice was uh, Om Namah Shivaya. And here's what she writes about where the whole practice led. She said, when my mind became pure, like a mirror free of dust, I found the self within myself. When I saw him within, I saw that he is everything, and I am nothing. O oh, Lali, all your life you were deluded. Only Supreme Shiva is everywhere. 
So this is where the practice of mystical prayer leaves. Starts off uh, with a connection to exoteric prayer, and very often people first learn exoteric prayer, but it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into this final realization. Well, it's been kind of a long morning. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close, and if any of you want to hang around and uh, talk some more or have some tea or check out the library, you're welcome to do it. Until next time, peace to you all.